0: Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I am Felicia King. And today with me is v- Vince Gramion I know I just threw a little awesome flourish on his name there. Uh, He's the president and founder of ResTech, uh, also CISSP, also one of my uh, CISO buddies. And we love to talk about all things cybersecurity and CISO workflow related. Uh, we are both pretty staunchly obsessed with this topic of protecting our clientele. And that is oftentimes coming through education, educating our clients as to what they need and how to get an efficacious outcome. We are definitely not engaged in check-the-box exercises. Uh, I would call us uh, very addicted to the intent of the law rather than some sort of check-the-box exercise approach. So on today's show here, we are going to rip apart cybersecurity insurance.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. That's what, that's what <laughs> we're
0: going to do. So, it's also um,
1: rippable, which, is, which makes it easy.
0: It is rippable. And, you know, the process is just so immature. Uh, that's my most polite way of saying it. Uh, So let's start out with with kind of some high level concepts here is that the MSP or the IT service provider or even the internal IT department should never be filling out an application for a business or a client unless it is for themselves. And even the IT department, I don't believe, should be an internal IT department should not be filling out a cybersecurity insurance application for a business unless that person's title is CIO or CISO. Other than that, they are probably not qualified to actually fill out that application. And I have found some pretty nasty fraud going on where uh, internal IT is requested to fill out an application. They do it. They turn it over to the CFO, who then just puts their signature on there. And so then the CFO is effectively committing fraud because they didn't verify, validate, or you know, check the attestation level of any of that stuff. They didn't get a second opinion. Nobody reviewed it. They just, you know, took it on blind faith. And please, if you are some of those people out there that are doing that, please, you have got to put a full train stop on that thing. That is just a, a great way of having a, an insurance policy that you will never be able to utilize. And then you'll end up with a denied claim, somebody saying that you committed insurance fraud and you'll never be insurable again because every future application that you ever fill out, it says, hey, have you ever had a denied claim? Why, why did you have a denied claim? <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I, I do not use a process where we fill out the applications for clients. Uh, we have a proprietary process that we use and uh, it, has been very widely accepted by brokers and insurance carriers. They love our proprietary process. And I would have to say, I also reject nearly all of the questions on these applications that are yes, no. I just just completely reject yes, no as an answer. It is almost always going to be um, partial. C-section XYZ in our supplemental documentation plus our attestation reports. And I've seen cases where I turned this stuff over to the client, the client turns it over to their broker and then the broker decides what they're going to interpret. Now, if what the broker does on the back end is they then turn those things into yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. That's on the broker. Mm -hmm. Then that is not even on the applicant themselves. But you as the applicant, you need to know what that process is that's going on and you need to have that documented and you need to make sure that the documentation that you provided to your broker, if what they're doing with it on the back end is filling, is taking your applications and putting it into some other system, you need to make sure that you have absolute attestable proof in a non-tamperable fashion that was what was it that was the information that you supplied to the broker, which is why I will never do the stuff verbally. It's 100 percent in writing, and I only provide them signed, encrypted, uneditable documents. So. Do we want to start ripping apart an insurance application?
1: Yeah,
0: sure. <laughs> um. So let's first talk about uh, something that you brought up earlier, which was some consternation it was a source of some major consternation uh, on the it channels where some i'm just gonna say really grossly misinformed it service providers were thinking that they needed to take the travelers the most recent travelers application literally you know and that can do you have that text there of what the travelers policy says where they were talking about they wanted MFA on switches, which is you know completely preposterous and just so laughable, it's ridiculous, and it's not required.
1: Right. So they were the asking on that was uh, primarily, do you have MFA, you know, for remote access uh, switches and PCs, and you know, from a you know from a cyber security hacker perspective. I don't care if you got mfa on your pc because i'm i'm laterally moving i'm i'm bypassing all of that I'm bypassing the the login so what efficacy is that I mean, other than uh separation of duties least privilege access those type of things you know the cleaning crew can't log in well good because that's awesome but uh from a breach standpoint i don't see that it being a, a effective but, you know, if they're saying that they're not requiring it per se, they're saying that do you have it and where do you have it, it kind of leads you to think you need it by I- implication.
0: Well, and the other problem is that they didn't break that apart, right? right. They, they basically put this giant chunk of stuff together and then it's a yes, no, yes, no. That's right.
1: it. Right. There's and- no room to, for explanation or clarification.
0: Well, which is why I completely reject their entire process and just say, you know, I reject their reality and I insert my own.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Jamie>.
0: <laughs> and so I, let, let's let tear apart this whole thing of like MFAN switches, okay? Yes. So, you know, first off, what is the intent of multi-factor authentication, right? You tell me, what is the intent of multi-factor authentication?
1: Uh, it's to make sure the authorized person is has access to the, the resources they're authorized to access and some sort of validation process that I know who's accessing. Let's call it access control, it's simply right. that I know who's accessing it. They've been verified, they have a verified token. They're okay. I'm and every- others,
0: others yeah. are inherently being excluded in that right. process. Zero trust. Yeah. Okay, so, so question for you. Is it a viable compensating control for MFA or is it a component of MFA? If there are, you know, ACLs that make it so that that authentication attempt to get to that resource cannot even occur at all. Like if those packets cannot even get to that switch management interface Mm -hmm. or that network layer security appliance management interface right? That those packets can't, that, that authentication attempt cannot even occur. Right. So is that a form of multi-factor authentication?
1: I think you're, you're, it's correctly the compensating control that does that and security by hygiene. Um, the only way it doesn't, and it has to assume physical access, I'm plugging in a console cable into the physical switch, therefore I'm protecting it at that point at the console level. But uh, at the network level, that could certainly be done uh, by the by the right hygiene ACLs, such isolation. Somebody has physical access; and they're in the server closet. Could be hard bigger... to not have game over at that point. Yeah, you know, yeah,
0: you got you got a lot bigger problems at that right, point exactly. in time. So, what if uh, an organization articulated how they have a privileged session management system
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in, com- in combination with those ACLs. So what that would look like is, oh, we have a PSM system, we have a privileged session management system, and there's MFA, well, first off, there'd be IP access control restrictions just to get to that, right? Sure. Sure. But then there's MFA to get to that. Then there's role-based access control inside of that. There and then when this. that system is <laughs> utilized to initiate the session, it's doing the authentication on behalf only through that specified ACL channel, and the entire session is being recorded. Yes. So, have we exceeded the MFA requirement?
1: No question. How do how would the broker or the insurance company even be able to uh, understand that? We have a similar situation because as an as an MSP, we have two factor authentication on a remote access tool. So, and it's all audited, and. Uh, so if we log in, we we attest that I'm Vince and I'm accessing this user's system, our privileged access machine or management machine at the client location. and it's on an ACL VLAN uh, all tightened off. I would say that's similar. you know I, i'm I'm accessing an audited, protected pri- really privileged customer has no access, and all of the ACLs are locked down, then yeah, I, I am attributing that that works that way, compensating hygiene. I'm doing security first by by design, uh, not without having these you know add-on controls. The uh, the MFA is like an answer to the problem, but an answer, it's not the answer. But I think it's like anything else; it's the buzzword of MFA. Ooh, you don't have MFA? Bad. You know, like that's all the brokers and the insurance company need to know. You don't have MFA, therefore, M- no MFA, therefore breach. It's just easy for them to. It's an easy way for them to do that.
0: Right. So this is why I think it's so crucial that the intent of the question be understood and that the intent of the question be answered. Yes. And when the question is poorly worded, yes, no does not work. So that's why I use the process that I use where I create a cybersecurity risk assessment questionnaire process with a crosswalk. And uh, it's not cheap or easy. I don't think anybody with less technical skills and less you know, compliance skills than myself can actually do it effectively. And uh, however, it is a repeatable process year after year. So if client actually pays us to do that the first year, then we get to leverage that effort for the next year. And it works as a process across applications. So, but that is our own little proprietary process. I think the intent here is that uh, we, we need to make sure that the end users, uh, these business decision-makers, these executives who are faced with these applications need to understand that if they're filling these applications out themselves, they're probably doing so in, from an uninformed place. No question. You know, I mean, what is your vulnerability management strategy? Well, if you say on the application, oh, well, our MSP does that. I'm sorry, that's not enough detail. That doesn't fly. No. Do you actually have a written internal company policy, not one that you think your MSP is doing for you? Do you have an internal policy? And how are you classifying vulnerabilities? You know, Are you using CVS scores? Or are you using EPSS? What exactly is it? and then do you have continuous vulnerability assessment how is that data being handled you know so if somebody thinks that they're actually going to transfer risk to their msp i don't really see that that working because fundamentally the the ultimate liability is do you want to continue to be in business or not and If you think that you're going to be in some sort of like, you're going to continue to be in business while you're in a five-year lawsuit trying to sue your MSP out of existence because they committed breach of contract, or at least you think they did. That's not a business continuity plan.
1: No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So To me, I'd much rather put the effort in saying, gee, do I have an internal company policy around all of these things that this company is asking me for on this application? And then how does my MSP fit into this? What exactly part of that are they doing? Like, I, I love this one where they ask the question of the the company, uh, do you have a BCDR plan? And so much of the time I have clients coming back and saying like, well, you do backups for us. Like, that's good. I'm like, that's not a BCDR plan, folks.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think even if they would, I was surprised to say they'd ask that. I would say they'd call you and say, what does BCDR mean? In most cases.
0: Well, hopefully they would have searched on the (laughs) internet and found the definition that FEMA has for, you know, BCDR. And last time I looked at the FEMA definition for BCDR, IT was only like 25% of the definition of it.
1: Well, hence the word business continuity.
0: Right. Right. So So
1: cyber security and, and information security, you know, it's business versus IT.
0: So this leads into, I think a whole nother, just an absolutely ridiculously important paradigm shift that really needs to be happening. And I I think the only people who are gonna be able to successfully help organizations navigate this are CISOs. And that paradigm shift is executive management needs to take responsibility for the resources and for the risk decisions associated with those resources. So that ultimately turns into, they need to identify who's the resource owner, and that resource owner needs to be working with the CISO to identify, hey, what risks exist with this resource that I, as the resource owner, don't know? Help me understand, how can we work together to understand risk, to classify it, to prioritize it, and to determine what we're gonna do, if anything, about that risk. It's gotta be this collaborative process. Yeah, and, you know, and the biggest problem that I see is virtually every organization does not have the operational maturity in place necessary at this point in time to successfully navigate this. And that they have to start making the budget to have CISO time, and to have every single month some amount of project kaizen budget associated with eating the elephant. So, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, uh, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate consultive, long-term engagement with a client that is going to really demonstrate: Do you have what? It, do you have the understanding that the client is net needs and the ability to communicate? Risk communicate uh, in in business terms as well as then have some capability of implementation or supervising implementation of the of these things. Produce reports, produce progress, produce the attestations that gives that customer because really they're not qualified to to do any validation. How would they know what you what you what you're giving them? You know, is is anything? I mean, how would they know without bringing someone else in? So the insurance situation. Is a phenomenal opportunity to get better with our clients' relationships. To have a clear picture of what our relationship looks like, you'll define the relationship conversation. Like, what am I? Do? What do you think I'm doing for you? You know, you're doing everything. We never want to go down. We never want to get hacked. Well, you know, buy you eyes, Cinderella. That, that's not happening. <laughs> you know, let's talk, let's talk about when it happens. And do you want fifty terabytes of data on your server to recover into in, in, in twenty four hours? Probably not. Well,
0: how about, do you want to pay the fees to back that monster up?
1: Well, that's this uh, particular client we were talking about earlier has got day one data. Insta 28 years of data from day one that they brought over from another firm that they left. So probably 30 plus years of data that has never been touched. I would say 80% of the data on that server, which is nearly 50 terabytes which we're backing up to a hotspot hot, hot, and then backing that up. So we got mirrored servers and we've got the remote offsite and we've got traditional backup. So yeah, we're getting way up there. And, you know, don't ask me, why does it take three days to recover the server? Because it will. Uh, But uh, having the ability to communicate to the client at, at that risk level, at the conversational level that they can understand, take back to their, their crew, their people that they talk to and their meetings that you may or may not have access to, but hopefully build up enough credibility to be able to sit in the boardroom with them, do a demonstration, do a do a high-level walkthrough because they're talking, they're, they're friends, they're going to these CLEs, you know, they're, they're constantly getting educated. What's shocking to me is CPAs, I know because we, we support a lot of CPAs, they sit there and they hear the same person every year talk about cybersecurity for the last 25 years and they still walk out of that like that's never going to happen to me it's still operating the same way so our game i call i call this game uh, msp 2.0 this is compliance this is information security this is doing things where you come from the enterprise level where most of us come from you know we came from pc going up you know we kind of rode the wave of internet back in the day so we're scrambling to learn all of these ideas and terms and you know committing to the see if it's, uh the the siSO workflow and, and thought process <clears throat> it makes you the ultimate consultant in business. I think it gives you a very high degree of stickiness with if it's credible and a high degree of uh, of a satisfying customer relationship overall
0: So this makes me think uh, about again another paradigm shift. IT professional services are not a commodity. It is a business-to-business partnership. It's not fiduciary. Let's be clear. It's not fiduciary. It is a business-to-business partnership to the degree to which the client consents the IT service provider to assist them. Because I think there's a lot of, IT service providers like your company and mine who want to help our clients more. Right. But they have to make the time for the meetings. They have to want to, they have to see value in the meetings, which means they have to fund that. They have to understand a paradigm shift that they don't just get to delegate and abdicate. They, they have to make time in their own schedule to be involved in these Kaizen processes of, How do we eat this elephant one bite at a time? And that brings up, um, what is this whole timing schedule anyways? The the process where if your renewal for your cybersecurity insurance application has to be, you know, your renewal is March 1st, then your broker may be sending you the application in January or February, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you have typically less than 30 days to complete this application. Now, that's supposed to be complete the application and have everything look like sunshine and roses on the application, okay? (laughs) Because then they need at least 30 days. I'm being told by a lot of brokers now that they need 60 to 90 days in order to be able to take those applications to uh, carriers to find out who is willing to provide uh, a policy to the applicant and for how much, right? In order to be able to kind of shop it. Right. So, oh. so if, if you don't start a year before, right? Like a year before, how do we have time for remediation? Cause you're not just mystically gonna start pulling policies and you know remediation out of your tail in less than 30 days.
1: Well, I think the larger issue I think is on the back end. Think of the insurance company as doing the ultimate third party risk management, right? Really, they're assessing all of these other companies and they're going to use a binary. That's why they use binary yes, no, because they're feeding it to a machine. The machine is going to then spit out a score based on yes, no's. The machine's not going to know what to do with your attestation and your, well, let me let me explain this to you situations. Generally, these are not human read. Uh, I know a, <laughs> a large multinational retail chain um, is it has off has in order for their lawyers to work with them have has offloaded their risk assessment to a third party, and it's simply yes, no. there's no real good qualification for it. Uh, and I've had to work with their the human side of this, and they don't get any type of explanation. They only want to see these binary answers and they don't see any explanation to that. so, we're losing the ability to give that nuanced conversation. Obviously, the broker is not going to know what to do with it. He's just brokering it out there, putting it in, in, into their thing, and they're getting picked up and analyzed and dropped back. So, what do we do with that? I mean, that's how do we affect the industry to allow this? I don't know; think that's even possible because they're in control of it all. But yes, I think, we, it's, cool. I, I th-
0: I think it's possible. But what okay. it's going to take is it's going to take a software vendor that is in the compliance space that has something that I'd like to turn into a CISO workflow platform that has automatic data ingestion from a continuous vulnerability system, continuous vulnerability assessment system, and that you can use as an organization, you can sustain the cost of the platform, you can sustain the cost of the human effort that goes into the data management inside the platform. If we can find a platform that reduces the burden rate uh, beyond, oh my gosh, I now have to have an $80,000 a year full-time employee just to babysit this application, plus I've got to pay $600 a month for the application itself, You know, if we can get something that is financially viable, and then if that does all the heavy grinding work and turns it into a score and that score gets transmitted to the insurance companies, then we will actually start to have what I'm going to call a fair assessment.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're asking, you know, for there to be a standard that the insurance company is going to accept.
0: I think the insurance companies are looking really hard at wanting. They want a standard. Like, Mm. you know, they're working with Security Studio right now. They're working with Fort Mesa. Um, They're working with CyberSaint. The insurance companies want the standard. They
1: probably want to offload it, yeah.
0: um, Well, they want to offload it to organizations that have personnel that have been in the compliance and in the IT security space for decades. Because the concept where the insurance companies or the brokers, even very, very large brokers, uh, the concept where they can actually go out and hire people to have, to be internal employees, to, to even advise applicants on this stuff, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like Marsh McClellan. Uh, as a as a broker, I think they do a really good job, but they won't take you if you have like less than 60 employees,
1: mm.
0: okay? So, you know, they're clearly serving a market and I think they serve it very well. They serve it a lot better than Hub. I've been very dissatisfied with every single interaction I've ever had with Hub, yet people seem to continue to use Hub for some reason. Uh, and, um, but what what happens, what is the process for everybody else out there. And and this brings something else to mind. I am particularly frustrated by the completely misplaced expectations that these business owners have of their broker. So if you're, let's just say you're you're a small business and your cybersecurity insurance premium every year is two to $4,000. How much money is your broker actually making on that deal? What? Four hundred bucks, five hundred bucks.
1: you not spending any time on that.
0: You know, so it's totally unrealistic to expect them to either a have the competency to advise you and two to take the time to advise you. That's not really their role. No. But yet the business owner seems to want that to be the broker's role because they think, well, well, that the you know that's not going to cost me any more money. I mean, there's just such a pushback <laughs> for. Uh, businesses to utilize their IT service provider or like an outsourced CISO, like a VC, CISO, for example, there's such a pushback because they're like, well, I don't have money for the remediation, let alone for actually getting advice properly. However, I would argue one really important piece there is so much IT security misspending that is going on. It is ridiculous. You can frequently find the money to hire your VC. So just simply by reducing the waste, but you're never going to know where the waste is without your VC. So
1: the objectivity of it, yeah, you know, it's gotta be somebody who has an objective, uh, not tied to the, to the, to the IT support budget. It's gotta be something like a, <clears throat> municipalities or States have the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, <clears throat> the inspector general, you know, somebody who can come and, and say and, and uh, assess, wait, this looks like it's OK. This looks like it's not OK, you know, based on on their experience and their ability to score these things. So, yeah, that I think if we could get that, I mean, but how defensive are most MSPs against anybody looking at their stuff? They're, they're usually pretty territorial and pretty defensive and not going to open much, not going to be very open to any type of scrutiny in most cases
0: so i mean this is where i think that uh something like a CISO workflow p- platform uh driving those standards mm-hmm. is really the the ultimate of necessity at this point you know um look at security studio as a great example i, I saw a report that compared uh, i believe it was acronis with Axiant with some other backup platform right it basically compared three backup platforms mm-hmm. and it compared them in terms of their security studio score as well as you know supporting information. So how is a buyer to objectively discern between those three backup platforms from a cybersecurity posture perspective? Well, I would argue that that security studio standardized score system is pretty darn powerful. Now it doesn't answer every question under the sun, and I do think it's a whole heck of a lot more objective and useful than simply the Gartner report system. Correct. Correct. No, I agree with that. I, I, you know, and with regards to the MSPs, when you have clients who you know hire you to. to work with them to so that they can understand better what's actually going on, so that they can be informed about filling out their cybersecurity insurance applications. I don't think you can say anymore. Oh, we've got our little proprietary bundle pack, you know, and we're not going to tell you what's in it. No. I also, um, I rail against this whole baloney sandwich that says, "Oh, w- well, we we use Sentinel One. You use Sentinel One? What?"
1: Right. Which what? which one? Which
0: there's eight, there's eight flavors of it. Right. You know, so like I literally saw a proposal recently from a competitor where uh, they were offering to cover 39 endpoints for $200 a year. Cover? Yeah, that that's not cover. That's not cover. That's not cover,
1: cover. That's not
0: cover <laughs> right? That that's just it's so oh. ridiculous that it is laughable on its face. So let's see. Well, that doesn't include, you know, Vigilant SOC Respond. That doesn't include vulnerability right. assessment. You know, that doesn't actually really include patching. Oh, they claimed that they were going to patch systems for $10 per month. You can't competently, you just cannot competently patch systems for $10 per month per endpoint. That's just, it's preposterous. So this is part of the thing that, you know, you you're there there is a realm at which the MSP needs to actually honestly and with integrity disclose what they're doing to clients and to prospects, because from my opinion, the Federal Trade Commission has a regulation that says that it is criminal fraud to fail to when you fail to disclose a material fact. okay? So if a prospect is coming to you and uh, you know, and they're looking for you to be their new MSP, and in your proposal it says, well, um, this is Sentinel-1, this is what we're doing. And they don't say what Sentinel-1 they're using. They're not disclosing that, well, these are the things that you're not getting Mm -hmm. because what you're getting is, you know, the dead zucchini in the garden that does nothing. Mm
1: -hmm. You
0: know, so these people are committing fraud because what they're doing is they're saying, oh, we use Sentinel-1 and you know what? You saw that in the Wall Street Journal, you know, And, and you saw that in this gartner report well the gartner report that mitre attack framework test results was 100% based upon vigilant sac respond deep visibility and plenty of other basically the entire full full on stack at sentinel 1 which is not the the $200 per year plan no. you know so it's criminal fraud and it frankly pisses me off because it is so it just so deeply is it's intellectually dishonest and it misrepresents everything to these prospects. And, and I think it's predatory. It's absolutely predatory.
1: Certainly a false sense of security by, by, by all of that. And I think that's uh, this difficult thing for MSPs to really want to have that conversation uh, to, to dissuade uh, or to, vacate that whole thought of, of, I'm just, hey, you're you're handling it for me, right? Okay, see you later. I'm going to go back about my business. Uh, It's a convenient thing for the end user to want to do that and abdicate, but they can't, obviously. And that's part of the educational process is, no, you own the risk. You decide what to do with it. And if you didn't vet that that vendor, you didn't vet that MSP, well, how would I vet that vendor MSP? Uh, Lots of stuff online that you can do to do that or ask second opinions. And then you get that ownership back to that to that uh, back to the the stakeholder owner person who is going to be responsible. So uh, you know, we talked about uh, maybe some sort of video series or some sort of series to help educate these stakeholder owners to, to their level of responsibility. Um, that way, they have some understanding. Insurance companies, I think, probably should do a, a better job with that. I think they they feed into this. Oh this is a cybersecurity insurance, so therefore it's IT, therefore it's not business. It's hand to your IT guy and everybody's just playing, you know, circular firing squad at that point. Uh, so I think this is a, I'm glad to see there's a lot more tension and a lot more conversation happening about this situation. Uh, this, the CISO mindset is is rising. Uh, and it needs to be even further. Uh, it needs to be. We really need to drill that in. I think uh, for right now, if, for an MSP such as ourselves, you know, that gives us competitive advantage in one aspect, and probably in, in another, it's a disadvantage because our prices are going to be higher than most. But we're going to deliver a different level of service. Well.
0: Oh, absolutely fantastic. Um you know, just something that happened to me in the last year was that a client I was working with on their cybersecurity insurance application, the their broker was Hub International and that broker representative Ooh. wanted to hear absolutely nothing about anything that was like operational maturity. She just literally indicated to my client that, that application should be handed over to my firm as the MSP and we should just fill it out. She's like, well, everybody else does that. Right, I'm right, like, right. that doesn't make it right. right. You know, what are you going to take? Like is it somehow a good idea for me to jump off the bridge with the rest of the lemmings? Yeah. Mm, nope.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> but that's, that's what <laughs> we live in. That's it's, it is that casual acquaintance airplane seat conversation with somebody who floats an idea past you because they just read it in Wall Street Journal, you know, <laughs> that we ought to do X. Why aren't we doing X? Well, to get to X, we need to be doing A, B, and C first. Uh, and we, you think we're just going to quantum leap? I mean, you know, Sentinel-1 is well-regarded in the industry. But, again, it's not just Sentinel-1. Sentinel-1 with everything around it, properly configured, monitored, maintained, you know, supported in in, in various configurations that are capable well.
0: And Sentinel One what? And and I have to push the accelerator down on this a little bit further too. Because what I find is that in the vast majority of cases, let's just say somebody is using Sentinel One SOC or you know their their MDR service effectively. All right, so who exactly is Sentinel One SOC authorized to talk to?
1: Probably the MSP. Because they're probably going through a reseller program.
0: But but more often than not, it's not the MSP. Mm. Why isn't it the MSP?
1: Do you I don't know? know? Why I wouldn't, honestly.
0: They don't, because if you're going to have a direct account with Sentinel One, oh, so that you can account. have. Okay. Okay. If you're going to have a direct account with Sentinel One, you have to have at least like 2,600, 3,800 endpoints under right. management. Right, right. okay that's a pretty substantially high threshold to meet and so what is the efficacy of that sock if the process is that the people in that sock they don't know the clients right they don't know the applications that the clients use they don't know their work hours their business processes they don't know what's normal abnormal you know they it's not really ueba right it's it's not end user behavior analysis so the the sock is so disconnected from the people that actually know that client what then becomes the workflow well, let's just say if the MSP is is buying their Sentinel One licensing through PAX Eight because they can't meet individually the thirty eight hundred dollar or the thirty eight hundred endpoint per month minimum, okay? Because they're they're now going through some sort of a third party. So then Sentinel One SOC goes and tells PAX Eight. Now PAX Eight has to tell your team.
1: Hmm. How, much,
0: how much time has transpired there and what has gotten lost in translation?
1: Oh, a lot. And what, what, is there an SLA that Pax8 even offers or somebody like that for, you know, what's the latency between one to the other?
0: I think I'm the only one talking about this. Yeah. I mean, everybody else feels I feel like everybody else is just doing a check the box exercise. You know, what versus like last year, I think it was last October, uh, Jonathan Nguyen, who is the CISO for Fortinet, he came out and he just said, you know, look, this whole concept of separated knock and sock, it's dead. It just needs to go. And he was at that time making the argument that he was the only one talking about it. And I was like, oh, that's total horse hockey. You know, I've been talking about that since at least 2011, if not before that. So I got with uh, Rui Lopez of WatchGuard and we did a whole podcast on converge knock and sock and you know why it is necessary that SOC not be separated from the knock people. And I'm not saying you can't have a a third party outsource SOC, but but it's just like what we're talking about here with regards to the cybersecurity insurance applications. You're either going to do it as a check the box exercise. Or you're going to focus on the intent Mm -hmm. of the risk management and the risk mitigation of having that thing. So if your intent of having that sock is that someone who appropriately can and is contractually empowered to, by the way, Mm -hmm. engage in host isolation like that and be making an informed decision on that and in addition to that they also can reach into the network layer and they can enable the incident response network layer policies well that that's not perch that's yeah. not blackpoint cyber Mm-mm. that's not sentinel one sock that's not those people so if you use an outsource sock How does the MSP create this relationship and workflow where they have direct access to that SOC data themselves and they're receiving it in real time and they are not abdicating their responsibility to ingest and understand that data and action it? Because there's no way, absolutely no way that anybody other than like Black Hills information security SOC service for Mm -hmm. more than a hundred grand a year is going at
1: 100
0: probably, grand a year. <laughs> yeah. Um is probably going to be making a really informed decision or contractually willing to make the decisions to say yeah, we're going to do host isolation. I don't believe I have ever seen in any outsourced SOC contract where they are willing to do host isolation. Wow. But yet this is the keystone, right? This is the keystone to an incident response process. So if your entire intent with SOC is we're going to have 24-7 monitoring and we're going to take action when there is an incident that necessitates action, if your action workflow doesn't work and not in a timely fashion, forget it just giant fail sandwich and as far as i'm concerned somebody selling that kind of a sock service to their clientele is committing fraud again because again what does the client have as a perception is the outcome of that service
1: well i think it goes again there's i feel there's more pressure on the small business community medium business community to satisfy the need to get insurance that that is the driving force behind the decisions that are being made. I think that is the driving force is compliance as a threat. Let's just call it compliance as a threat. You know, it's, that's a good term, you know, that we can coin that today. Compliance as a threat. You know, it's, we are just as, I mean, if law firm A can no longer do business with vendor B because of lack of compliance, that's a threat. And they will do whatever it takes at a small, small law firm, less than 50 people spend well over $400,000 in one year to get themselves from the panel wall version of their network from 1980, zero uh, to compliance. Um, they thought it was worth it. I I questioned it myself, but they needed to be there anyway. But, man, they went from zero to ISO 27001 in less than a year. Uh, and that's because they were, they're, they're, their client required it. And if a, if a good chunk of their business depended on it, and that was the prestige issue as well. So compliance is a threat needs to be looked at. And I think that's what's driving most of the decisions. And if we get security as a byproduct, great.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I just want whatever is done to be done in an intellectually honest, non-fraudulent manner.
1: You're asking for a lot, Felicia. <laughs> These are people we're talking about.
0: <laughs> um, well, look, your your fundamental requirement, I think, for your MSP who is going to have admin access over the environment is, you know, can you trust them? And Big boy, one. I I look at the proposals and quotes and contracts of my competitors. And I wouldn't trust them with a 50 cent piece because what they are offering is not intellectually honest with achieving the outcomes that the clients are expecting to even have a check the box exercise on their insurance application. Well, you know, clearly we could go on for like 500 years on this topic. You, I don't think
1: we even tore a corner of the page on the application <laughs> around <laughs> all the concepts.
0: Well, but but we did in terms yeah. of, you know, what, what really needs to happen here. It's people need to understand the meat and potatoes of what's happening behind those questions.
1: Yes, totally agree. Uh, and I think... The, we, the pressure, hopefully the insurance companies are are realizing that these yes, no's are, this is built for a system um, that doesn't take into account uh, people who know what they're doing and, and, and have a good system, a defensible system that does not fit within these bubbles. You know, this is the old fashioned number two pencil test, right? Remember those the bubble tests? Uh, they're all machine read. You know, so uh, because of the volume, and that's what we're dealing with. We're having people flocking into cyber insurance, flocking them as a as a way to mitigate risk or thinking they mitigate risk. And if they have to fill these things out, that's just a step on the way to doing that. And if we get securities, a byproduct, yay. And MSPs like, oh, mo- money opportunity, more stuff. And then we're just, just stumbling and fumbling down the road.
0: Well, that's so, that. I mean, one thing you said there really, really stuck out strong, which is These applications don't work for people who know what they're doing. Right. And my comment on that is that I feel as though 98% of the market doesn't know what they're doing.
1: I would not disagree, (laughs) unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Um, That's why, you know, I don't think that more government regulation is the answer here. I think the answer to this problem is for business owners to look at this as the existential threat that it is. It's the threat to their budget, right. right? By misspending. It's the the threat to them continuing to be an effective business who's in business, who has, you know, uptime, capacity, availability, you know, confidentiality of the data that they have, that their data has integrity, so forth. It's it's an existential threat to their business. And you know, you said it before, it's also an existential threat to them having customers. More and more customers are mandating that they have a well-established risk posture and they have a level of operational maturity. And frankly, if you get one of those audit requests or you know, proof requests from a customer, and you can't turn it around in a week.
1: Done.
0: It's done sandwich.
1: <laughs> well, think about the reason that these customers, these companies, are getting these requests is because those their parent client, their, their, their clients are having to comply with with whatever they're complying with. Right. Uh, so it's just this big, you know, everybody's, you know. I, I can't think of the description for this, but we're all like, you know, who's on first? You know, it's, it's it's we're all chasing after this satisfaction of something that's driving, and we're all trying to check the box. Unfortunately, it ends up being check the box because that's the immediate threat. I have to check the box. That's what is the, in the face of the decision maker, stakeholder, owner. I must check box to get this. In order to get to get this, I have to get that, and so it's a, it starts. A, it's a series of events. If this, then that type of conversation. If I get checkbox, I get my client and it's, that's the monkey getting the M&Ms. You know, it's like, it's just going to, just going to keep pushing the button as long as it gets M&Ms, you know,
0: <laughs> that was precious. That was precious. I mean, that, that was just so elucidating.
1: <laughs> it's my gift to the world. <laughs>
0: Oh, I swear, there's a doodly moment in there.
1: <laughs>
0: there is definitely a doodly moment in a video. Oh associa- yes, you know, oh, associated yeah. with some customer education there. You know, compli- compliance and check the box exercise. It is monkey pushes the button and gets M and M's.
1: Well, we won't do any copyright strikes or no any revenue to to uh, to the Mars company. So we'll just say candy.
0: Okay, um, <laughs> killing me on that one. That's great. Uh, so I, I think let's let's do this. Okay. I think it would be a very, very, very interesting exercise if we put an offer out there that if there were business owners who wanted to come to us with their completed cybersecurity insurance applications. Ooh, yes. We would review them in an anonymized fashion mm-hmm. as long as they consented to us talking about them in podcast format and using that opportunity to educate the rest of business decision makers out there. So we we won't say the company's name. Right. Uh, we may we may disclose what the industry is, but um, uh, what do you think about that? If we do an offer to business owners, that as long as they let us use the, the content, the real world examples for educational purposes here, that um, we'll review their applic- their completed application.
1: As submitted, right?
0: As submitted. What do you think?
1: I I think it's worth doing. Uh, I, I think it's from an educational yeah. standpoint. I think you need sampling. Sampling this. I don't know what sample uh, size you might want to use, but and this is the typical thing. And I think we would probably get a lot of those from MSPs because they're probably doing this and not realizing what they're doing.
0: Well, I I don't want to do it for MSPs. No, no, no. I om- yeah i only want to do it for for non-msp businesses business because as far as i'm concerned if you're an msp and you're struggling in these areas get out get out of the industry because i at that point in time i don't feel that you're you're qualified to service your clientele and and that is my very staunch opinion about that like if you cannot be a competent it service provider and you're, you know, you're not leading the way in this, in these endeavors and efforts, then it's fraudulent. It it runs into that realm of fraudulent. It's, it's, you know, you're, you're saying to your client, we can offer the service, we can do these services competently, but then you're not, Mm -hmm. I have a real problem with that. It's just like these, you know, clowns that are saying, we're going to patch your windows endpoints for 10 bucks a month.
1: I think one of your recent podcasts, um, I'm going to start bringing it to my sales force to as a competitive differentiator is does your existing IT provider give you a list of all the people who could kind of have admin access to all of the portals available to your network, has to the sensitive data. Do you know if the third parties can get it in bypassing the the the, you know, using the the, the MSP's conduit that they provided for them to do whatever is necessary? Yep. And disclose that.
0: Yes. Well, look, the the
1: software bill of materials idea is what libraries are are we using? What vulnerabilities are my bringing to you? What threats have I increased by putting an arm in remote access tool in your in your situation?
0: Right. I mean, look, this just goes this goes back to the uh, the FTC rule with regards to criminal fraud. You know, it's failure to disclose a material fact. And I mean, I, I don't hardly ever see it enforced. The last time I saw it enforced was the FTC went after it was either JP Morgan Chase or some big honkin' bank like that. Uh, and it had to do with uh, mortgage securities fraud. And, um, you know, it, it was a sizable fine. It was, you know, a few billion dollars or something, which is clearly still chump change for the investment banking firms. Uh, But, but the regulation is out there. And uh, so here's a hot burning question for you. How do you think I learned about this, this FTC criminal fraud statute?
1: I know you're, you're a voluminous intaker of information, but probably something more simple. So, well,
0: there's a giant CISSP book back here (laughs) behind me.
1: That big, big, thick thing you could kill a rat with? Yeah.
0: And and one of those pages in that giant CISSP book talks about the FTC's regulations around the criminal fraud statute on failure to disclose a material fact. <laughs> so therefore, every CISSP should know that because it's in the book.
1: It is in the book. <laughs> As long <laughs> with a lot of other things <laughs> that's why okay. we need to, that's why we need each other
0: <laughs> well yeah I mean we're never going to know everything all the time nobody nobody knows everything and I th- I think that we're learning new stuff every day but that's part of probably the the a good bender selection process is you know what is the fire what is the the passion of the CISO who is, you know, at the helm of the MSP who services you?
1: They keep their job. Uh, be stay out of the newspapers.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'm obsessed about not getting hacked. Right? I mean, oh, yeah. it's that, it's that continuous improvement drive all the time to say, Absolutely. I don't want to be hacked. I know there's always more stuff to be improved upon every single day. I could actually have a full-time job uh, just engaging in Kaizen. And so, you know, these business owners, I understand the predicament that they have because the predicament is, you know, there's all this stuff you could be working on for yourself internally. Yes. But yet you still have to serve as your clientele because you have to actually make money too. So, But you have to find some sort of a balance.
1: Right. Well, I have this tongue in cheek saying, if the customer stop calling us, so we might be able to get to do some work. So, uh, <laughs> 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 they keep interrupting our work. Goodness sakes. Now, I say that tongue in cheek to kind of reprioritize like people are our work. You know, it's the people that we're serving. Um, everything else is something we got to do on, you know, our primary business is serving clients. And then we, but we have to service ourselves as well. We, I used to tell our clients, all, our, our team all the time, ResTech is your number one client. You have to think of ResTech as being your number one client because they their satisfaction with your services is going to determine whether you keep getting a paycheck. And, Absolutely, and it's you look at it like that. You have to protect ResTech by doing the right things. You have to advise the clients properly. You can't get us into a mess by giving us more risk than I bargained for. You know, I'm not authorizing that. You did that on your own. You know, so you know, I would tell a particular person used to work for us: if you're personally and financially responsible for the decisions you made, we'll go with it. But if you're not willing to be personally and financially responsible, we're not doing it. You know, because his perspective on how to support clients was. I'll sell you used tire, but I'll be there to fix it. Rather than I'm going to sell you new tires, you know, and with thick run flats or whatever it is, because it's more important that you get to your destination rather than I respond quickly. Yes, uh, that's how you. That's how you. I put that to the client. Do You want me to respond quickly, but you have a flat every other week, or do you want to not have flats.
0: That's fantastic.
1: You have to All put right. it in terms that makes sense. Uh.
0: <laughs> And that's not always that easy. No. It's a big challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Sure. Uh, I'm going to post our offer out there in writing. Yeah, I like and, that. And we'll, we'll see who takes us up on that offer.
1: And sure. It shall
0: it shall be a choose your own adventure series.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask some of the clients. Uh, I'll look at some of the things that we got from our clients as well and see what uh, if they're okay with us releasing that. I mean, it's on, anonymized, obviously. obviously.
0: Yeah. Right, anonymized. All right. Thank you for your time, Vince. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right. Have a great day.